0: Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our first Inside Curling show post games from Beijing uh,
1: with our two pundits, uh, Kevin Martin. Kevin, how are you doing? Are you are you ready? Great, Jimmy. I'm back home, and yeah, it's always nice to be home. So fantastic,
0: Hanson. Uh, now you're kind of going to be mixed up. You're going to have to get up at four <laughs> o'clock for the next six months in a row.
2: Well. I'm enjoying the second day in a row that I haven't had to get up at four AM, so that's a joy in itself.
0: Kev, even though lizard needs some rest. <laughs> Stick around, we gotta talk about a bunch of stuff when we come back.
2: Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I
3: don't think I'm I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. No, the line's
2: really good. Line's right on the button, guys. Right Last here, stone guys. for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate.
1: He is a champion.
0: Okay, we're back, everybody, Uh, and we're excited, as I said, to bring our first show post-game. We want to fully recognize all the sponsors that we have for Inside Curling, which is Sports Interaction. They bring you what is happening around the curling world. Uh, Our mailbag segment is brought to you by Nestle Boost. Coyote Tractor has stepped up and sponsors Hot Rock Topics. And Storytime is brought to you by Meridian. And in the house, our guest segment is brought to you by Goldline. So here's what's happening on the show Pay attention, Kev. Warren, don't make any mistakes, okay? Because you guys are on me when I make mistakes. <laughs> what's happening around the curling world? The Briar is going to start March 4th. Here it comes. Uh, we got to get some updates on that. The World Curling Federation put uh, an update out uh, last week regarding rules they were thinking about changing for this year's World Championships. Who knows what's going to happen there, so we're going to talk about that. Hot Rock Topics. Mike Hay was a top-rated curler from Scotland whose father, Chuck, Won Scotland's first ever World Curling Championships in 1967. Mike went on to represent Scotland five times at the Worlds, including being an alternate on the 1991 Scottish team. Uh, Kevin, you played in that uh, World Championships. Mike has communicated to us some very interesting thoughts regarding Canada and their World performance. Yes, always a lively topic. Mailbag. We get a ton of emails all the time. We're going to take a look. At one about the difference in Canadian ice and international ice. In the house today, we've got a great guest. uh, Andrew Paris is coming on, who's going to talk to us about a bunch of initiatives that he's doing. Uh, One of them is Black Rock Initiative. He's hooked up with Sportsnet to talk about Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And uh, he's really taken up this cause. Um, Great guy. So we're going to speak to him. Uh, And then, of course, we've got story time. Where in it's story time. You're going to talk to us about a guy I certainly knew too and many, many people knew uh, who did so much for curling and writing about curling in Larry Wood. So we look forward to that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for your emails. Uh, We'd lo- we love to hear from you, inside curling at gmail.com. Uh, so let's do this. Uh, what's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports interaction is Canada's odds maker. And of course, you got to be 19 years old and responsible to play. Okay. So let's get it underway. The Briar Boys is uh, coming up. Uh, Kevya, this just in, you did pretty good at the Briar when you went. Um, and it's coming up March 4th. Warren, you got all the uh, teams, uh, the list of them in front of you. And it is, is it eight, 14 deep or 18 deep now? 18 for the field? deep
2: now. 18 deep. So, just first of all, last week we put out a couple of names that weren't correct because uh, we couldn't dig up the information. So we'll go through them all and give you the current uh, situation with regard to who's playing in the Briar. Starting with British Columbia, Brent Pierce, Alberta, Kevin Cooey, Saskatchewan, Colton Flash; Manitoba, Mike McCune, Northern Ontario, Brad Japoogs, with Mark Kennedy, will be playing third for him, Ontario, Glenn Howard, Quebec, Michael Fournier, New Brunswick, Jim Grattan, Nova Scotia, Paul Fleming, PEI, Tyler Smith, Newfoundland, Labrador, Nathan Young, their Northwest Territories, Jamie Cuey, and I think this is about his 17th trip, Yukon, Thomas Scoffin, and none of it Peter McKay. Team Canada, Brendan Botcher, and the three wildcards that were named last week, no surprise on the first one, some people thought it was, but Brad Gushu. Number two, Matt Dunstan, and number three, Jason Gunlinson, which Gunlinson uh, did not play in the Manitoba Playdowns. I don't believe, but he has decided to take the wild card spot because his team did play in the Manitoba Championships. Kevin, I think looking over that field, I don't really see us missing anybody that we would consider to be a contender. Do you?
1: No, that's a really good, strong field. No question about that. I wish there'd be some, uh, some young younger teams coming up. Um, you do have Matt Dunstone in there, who's who's young, and Colton Flash, somewhat young, but for the most part, it's it's kind of the the, the the same old teams that you would expect every time, and I guess that's okay. I would just love to see some some young people getting in there. Uh, Kev, what what do you think uh, when H- Howard? I, I think
0: well, Howard can't be in there again, right? They've they've been to a, <laughs> a million of them. Okay, how many we're, we're how many Howards can there be that that can get in this thing? Glenn Howard, Kevin is back to the Brier. Uh, whether he'll be able to curl or not, I'm not sure because he didn't in the playdowns. Right, his his son skipped that team and got them in. How about him? You got to
1: give him marks, man. Back back at it again. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, to keep keep focused and keep energized and and uh, and and just wanting to play is amazing to me. Um, but that's great. That's great. Um, you know, obviously. You know, I said it before, it'd sure be nice to see some young teams in our national championship because uh, you look down the list, it's the average age is is getting up there. (laughs) 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 We'd like to see some younger teams, I think, but you know, you've got all the best, the best of the best, you know, and uh, which is great. Um, It's just, you know, the field doesn't change a lot from year to year. Well, your youngest team, uh, Kevin, gets a senior discount when they go to movies. No, they're not that (laughs) old. Yeah,
0: they're not that old. Okay, the World Curling Federation put out an update uh, regarding the three rule changes that they were going to implement at the world's men's and the world's uh, women's events this year. Uh, Are they doing that Warren or not?
2: Well yes and no. So previously they had said that the no tick rule was going to be instituted at both the men's and women's worlds. Then they kind of drew back about uh, three weeks ago saying they're still thinking about it And last week, they confirmed that the no-tick rule will be in effect at the men's and women's worlds. And here's the way it will work. No-tick is in place for the free guard zone. So that's anything in the free guard zone for the first five rocks of the end will not be able to be ticked off if they're touching the center line. If the opponent's stone is removed, it is returned to its original position. The stone can be removed as long as it remains touching the center line. If two teams can't agree on whether a stone is touching the center line, the umpire will decide. So the new tech, no ticker rule is in effect for all the games at the World and Women's Championships, and it's for the first five rocks. They had previously indicated, as we are well aware, that they were going to experiment as well with no extra ends in the round robin. And they're also going to introduce a timing per end experiment as well in, in both events. But they've suggested at this point in time that those two things are going for more study, uh, but that no tick rule will be in place for the men's and women's championships. Kev, what do you think?
1: Well, yeah, the no tick one, that's kind of a, a no brainer. Um, all at the Olympics here recently, in, in uh, female and male curling, it, uh, the tick is missed very little. Also, something that needs to be looked at isn't just the center line tick, but the corner guard tick as well. That's being promoted into the back twelve foot and rolling your shooter to the boards. And then even if you put a decent guard, they can dig it out because they bump it to the back 12. It's, it's becoming a problem as well, Uh, but that's a more recent problem than the centerline tick. The centerline tick is almost never missed now. So this no tick zone is very, 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 very important, um, to the late ends of the game, especially, but even at the start, you see teams ticking off rocks, uh, early in game. So I think it's really, really important. And I do agree to not bring them all in the same time, like bring in one test it out then down the road maybe in two years time or something bring in another one test it out if you bring everything in at one time and it it turns out to be a small which one of the three caused it if you bring in too many variables how do you test things so this is smart i think bring in one test it out see the results and then carry on um you know it's an evolution of a sport it doesn't have to be changed overnight but i'm glad to see that they're thinking about it and they're starting to do something about it which is great other sports do it you know
0: Baseball did, hockey. Remember hockey, they had foot in the crease. They tried it. It was an absolute nightmare when they did it. (laughs) But Brett Hall scored a goal with his foot in the crease to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, So that caused some change. But uh, why shouldn't curling do it too? Uh, InsideCurling at gmail.com if you want to make some comments on that. Thanks a lot to Sports Interaction uh, for sponsoring what's happening around the curling world. Hot Rock Topics brought to you by Coyote Tractor. Thanks a lot to those guys. Uh, proud sponsor of Team Brad Jacobs, who's on his way to the briar and the Grand Slam of curling, Coyote. We dig dirt. We mentioned uh, this uh, man from Scotland, Mike Hay, uh, who's a renowned curler for Scotland. Uh, what we didn't tell you really is that Mike has an idea about developing high-performance teams, how they do it uh, in, in Europe and in, in Great Britain. Uh, you know, compared to how we do it here, uh, they did do it the way we did it, and he didn't like it. He said, "No, well, we're going to we're going to change that." Uh,
2: Warren, tell us about this. Well, I guess first of all about Mike. Mike certainly was one of the great Scottish curlers back in the '80s, early '90s, to some degree. And following his playing days, he actually started working for curling in Scotland, and he ended up working with the British Olympic Committee. So he's got a lot of experience in dealing with uh, the administrative side of sport. He just retired his position last summer after the Games in Tokyo, and he's now retired living in Portugal. And he sent us this note suggesting we might want to think about this. And I think it's a very interesting summary that Mike gives us of what happened in Scotland, and I will read it. As you know, we made the move 20 years ago to select player teams for the Olympics, and more recently, the world's. I, I copped a lot of criticism from the teams in Canada also for disrupting the traditional way of how curling teams were structured. But I feel now some redemption. I believe Canada has some of the best players in the world in both men's and women's, so that's not the problem. What I would say with the centralized system we have in Scotland, Great Britain, is a national center with a tr- strong coaching team backed by top practitioners, investment in analysis, research, etc., which is provided for all, leads, all athletes' teams in the squads. You have all that in Canada too, but you don't appear to be using it effectively in preparing teams. You make them carded athletes without much central input. I believe our guys know much more about their opposition in the Olympics than other t- nations do. The continual argument that the rest of the world is professional and Canadians have jobs doesn't cut it anymore. That's head in the sand stuff. The professional tour, remember, is in Canada. The Great Britain coaching team should take some credit for dismantling the women's team after their failure to qualify for the Olympics a year ago at the World's adopt a squad system, then selected the best athletes to prepare for the final qualification event held in the Netherlands in December. And you may recall, Eve Muir had last year finished eighth in the Women's Worlds. What he's telling you is they went back and restructured that team, they came back, they won the European Women's Championship. I believe they were undefeated. They qualified through the event in the Netherlands and of course have gone on to take the gold medal at the Olympics. Granted, a five and four record in the round robin, but nevertheless, they did prevail. He goes on to say, if Canadians think most European teams have only one team, you could be in for a surprise. And the effect of winning Olympic gold medals will inspire even more to get into the Great Britain Central System. The wildcard system in Canada will eventually lead to very different briars and scotties. And ultimately, Canada will learn that teams developed at the provincial level may not be helping your chances at the global events. Interesting comments from Mike, Kevin. What do you think about what he's got to say?
1: When it comes to this, well, where do you start? Um, well, first, I guess there's no question that the system that they have is working right now, but you've got to remember they've got two Phenom curlers, one in Eve Muirhead, who's coming into her own right now, she started going into the Olympic Games when she was only 19 years old in 2010 in Vancouver. But, you know, fantastic player, great curling mind. And she's really coming in her own now, which is fantastic. And then you got Bruce Mallett, who is going to win lots of stuff. And I don't see how you could stop Bruce from winning stuff under any system. You put any system you want, Bruce Mallet's going to win stuff because he's so good. Um, you know, he curls at 90% pretty much day in, day out. When it comes to a central, as soon as I hear the I I, I start to shiver when I hear the word, word centralized. That means government, which means it could be good, but it could also be the old boys club and almost always ends up being an old boys club till you blow the system apart and then rebuild. So that's going to happen to them. Uh, there's no question that that word centralized uh, certainly is, is not a good word in my world. Uh, but to Mike's point about, Provincial teams being the strongest way for team Canada to go to a world's or Olympics, he's absolutely, obviously, right. How could we possibly think that a province would have the four best possible curlers to win us a medal? So it's an interesting discussion that we'll hopefully we will have in, in Canada, um, as to how to do it. Uh, certainly he was right with the amount of training that the athletes get so that They can, you know, they can compete at the absolute highest level possible. That's true. And as far as the information that they get from the governing body, as far as research, um, scouting, all of that type of stuff, probably as more as well. I don't know that for a fact, you know, and, and, you know, he's saying that likely the teams have more information than the Canadian teams on their competition. Well, that may or may not be true. I, I don't know if there's any proof for that but as far as uh, the governing body setting up all the teams oh boy i don't know about that but to have a, a training camp situation uh, starting at a young age to build these groups of high level players and 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 maybe setting up four to six teams uh, of absolute best players uh, i i don't see any problem with that and then maybe they battle it out to see who's going to represent us to have some person on high choosing, and I'm always worried about. Well, it's my second cousin therein, Uh you know what I mean. It's it, how do you trust these people? Like that's a major problem for me. Um, I, I would definitely want the decision of who goes to a Worlds or Olympics to always be decided on the ice and not in a corporate boardroom where sponsorship money politics, all of that comes into it. That scares the hell out of me. But to to make sure that we have the decision made as to who's going to represent us decided on the ice, yes. But we shouldn't be tying their hands to regionalization because that's that's also not good because now you're not allowing teams to develop their very best team. So can it be through some kind of a training camp situation? Sure, I, I think that's reasonable. And maybe we, as a nation... We have enough depth to have four to six men's, four to six women's and four to six mixed doubles teams that compete at the highest level. And you try to make the grade. You somehow have to be good enough to get into this camp. And now maybe there's a the tier one camp is your very, very best 15, 20, 25 athletes. And then you've got your tier two young athletes coming up because we just talked about the briar. We got all these old people playing in it. Well, how do the young guys get good? So we need a tier two group that get the same type of training because they're they're the future of our sport. And right now they get to play provincials in the most cases, but it's the old dogs that win. And then they're sort of done because it, you know, they don't qualify for the slams because the slams are the best of the best. That's their purpose. It's not about the slams ideas not about, about bringing up young players into the slams. The slams are the best against the best. So you, go, you have to become the best before you get invited into the grand slams. the the governing body has to be about growing the sport. And right now it's not doing a very good job of that. So somehow we need to get these young people into maybe a tier two training camp situation where they go once a month to some city, or maybe it was one in the East, one in the West, whatever the case may be. Right now we don't have the structure to Mike's point to compete at the world level on a consistent basis
2: because the rest of the world is is, uh, growing quick, we're not. I'm not sure there's any silver bullet as to what should be happening going forward. There's many options that can probably be considered, but I think the key thing is it needs to be started to be discussed and looking at some options as to what might work better than what currently seems to be happening. As far as Kevin mentions, the young guys coming up and the whole system. So it'll be interesting to see what does take place.
0: Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor uh, for bringing you hot rock topics. Uh, OK, uh, fellows, very good. Uh, email uh, is brought to you by Nestle Boost, up your nutrition game with Boost, convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you are guaranteed to love, uh, which I've always said I do. Uh, hello, Kevin, Warren, and Jim. I'm a big fan. Uh, great to have such insight to the game. Uh, you can't get this anywhere else. It seems uh, watching the international events the past few years, 18 Olympics uh, worlds, and this year's Olympics so far, Canadian crows seem to be struggling with the ice. Whereas in domestic events like the Scotties, Briars, curling tour events, they seem to shoot lights out most of the time. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that, boys? Is there a difference when it comes to this? In Canada, big events seem to be in arenas, but international events seem to be in a uh, specialized building, uh, i.e. Canadian champs look unstoppable here, but then not so much at the Worlds and the Olympics. Or is it just the competition that is the main
1: difference? Well, we just talked about some of that. Uh, thanks a lot keep up the good work oliver what do you think kev well i think the ice conditions you had Hans with doing the ice at the olympics he's fantastic so i don't know um if there's much difference uh, as far as ice goes from the say the bubble in calgary or or the olympics or whatever the case may be the ice makers they have uh making the ice at these various events are are really really good at their job um so i i don't know like i don't think there's much ice problem um I think our teams were pretty close. Like in case of uh, of Brad Gushu. like he, he came darn close to making that raised double that would have put him into the gold game, you know, and and so on. And and Rachel Holman, quarter inch, eighth of an inch, some distance like that for making playoffs. So you know that's the way it goes in sport uh, sometimes. But I don't think I can. I don't. I just can't blame it on on the ice conditions. or conditions at the event. I called thirty four games during the Olympics. So we got a real good look at the ice. And it seemed to me that uh, it was, it was a very level playing field. It was fair conditions for all athletes. As far as I could tell.
2: Yeah. I think if there's any variation, it's with the stones and the philosophy of the slam versus curling Canada versus WCF is slightly different with regard to how aggressive the rocks are. And so the slam have the most aggressive rocks, curling Canada events in the middle and then the world philosophy is probably the least. So, you know, you can somewhere between three and probably five plus feet is the, the minimum to the maximum. And I think that's the main variation that I would expect. But I, I, I'm, I'm with Kevin. You've got the same ice makers. They're doing things the same way. So the conditions themselves, the only challenges they might face is a variation in the buildings they're in and have to deal with some issues as a result of that. But I don't see any difference otherwise.
0: Uh, this email uh, i'm going to read it. We weren't going to uh we called the humble brag okay that's what uh, that's what <laughs> I like uh, hello, jim. <laughs> hello jim hello Jim hello, Jim morning. Kevin. I just wanted to extend my sincere thanks to all of you for your excellent and enjoyable podcast. I've enjoyed the humorous presentation and knowledge, opinions on the various matches and other related curling topics with the initial failure of the mixed doubles team, I felt uh, very sad that we are not able to be in the medal rounds. Well, we've talked about a bunch of that. Your comments in regards to the difficulty of the game today with all the enhanced competition certainly changed my mood. Uh, after these comments, I gained a different perspective in watching the Canadian teams in the remaining competitions, which made it much more enjoyable. Thank you once again for your excellence in broadcasting. You made the understanding of these games of curling 100% less confusing. And particularly, thank you very much, Jim. No, I didn't say that. I just <laughs> take, take care and keep well. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Uh, we really appreciate that. And thanks everyone else who listens to the show. If we read your email, insidecurling at gmail.com, you're going to get uh, an, electro, an electronic copy of Warren's book. Warren, uh, up to date, Sticks and Stones. Is it up there and selling?
2: I hope it is, Jim. I don't really have any way of knowing at this point, but uh, getting some good, good interest. So hopefully it's going well.
0: So there we go. Oliver and Wayne, you're going to get a copy of uh, Warren's book. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, Let's get to it. Time for In the House, our uh, guest segment. And our guest is coming up right now. And it's Andrew Paris. Uh, so now it's time for our regular spot that we do. Uh, one of our segments every week on Inside Curling is we have on a guest. And it's called In the House. It's brought to you by Goldline Curling Equipment. They can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, and Scarborough, uh, and Mississauga, and also two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. So this week, our guest, if he's here, there he is uh, in the house. Uh, come on in. Andrew Paris. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm good, Jim. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So born in Summerside, PEI, now lives in Churro, Nova Scotia. All the hotspots, man. I've been there. I've been to both those places. Uh, Andrew is a person of color who is a curler and someone who's very passionate about the sport of curling, and he's also a coach. Uh, he's a champion of getting more involvement from the a BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color, uh, community, Canada-wide. You really are passionate about this, Andrew, and you've taken this on your old shoulders, uh, and are trying to develop this program to get us more diverse and look at equality in, in all sports. Of course, this is, this has come on very well in the last, you know, several years. And you said curling is no different. So we need to get together and see what we can do. Uh, and you've got a couple of, Projects that you're doing and a couple of the programs. So when did this all come about, uh, Andrew, for you? Uh, first of all, how did you and when did you get involved in curling and fall in love with it?
3: So I've been involved in curling for as long as I can remember. Um, my grandfather got me into curling. So him and I would sit around and watch the Scotties and watch the, the Labatt Tanker back in the day. And I would roll soup cans across the floor, drive my mother crazy. <laughs> but that's another story for another time. But there's not a point I can remember in my life where I wasn't in love with the sport.
0: And so uh, when you did get involved in it, at what point did you say, OK, uh, this maybe isn't as diverse as it should be? When did that all come around
3: that you thought, I better take that on and see what you can do to improve it? So I started curling at the age of seven. I knew right from then and there that curling um, isn't quite diverse. But of course, you know, being a kid, you're just out there mainly throwing rocks versus trying to change the world, so to speak. But um, it was really in my time as a um, technical director with the Nova Scotia Curling Association where we thought about what are some of the things that we could do. Um, Unfortunately, with just a staff of two, there wasn't a whole lot we could do at the moment. So after I stepped away from the sport, and really it was after everything in, with George Floyd where... I got together, had some conversations with in Canada around what we could do to make the sport more diverse. But really it was conversations with Aaron Flowers and Goldline around like, what can we truly do right now to make the sport more diverse? And that's really where things got started.
0: So you've taken on, uh, as I said at the top, uh, a couple of different projects. You've hooked up with Goldline to do a broom program. Uh, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so in the summer of 2020, um, Aaron reached out and asked if I was interested in designing a broom that spoke about my culture. So after um, some conversations with them and some of their design team, we came out with a broom that we called the Desmond, named after Viola Desmond, the civil rights pioneer here, born here in Nova Scotia. And it's a broom that tells the story of history of, of Black people across Canada.
2: Cool. Yeah, very good. Uh, Warren? Yes, Andrew, so good to have you on with us. Thanks for joining our show. You have started the United We Curl initiative primarily with Aaron Flowers at Goldline. You want to tell us about the United We Curl project, how you're moving on that one?
3: Yeah, so the United We Curl project, it's um, not just air, There's a bunch of different people involved, but what we're doing is I'm um, providing education and tools to curling clubs really to um, explain how they can go about making the clubs more diverse and marketing to a population that's more diverse.
2: So how is that uh, progressing so far? How long have you been at that particular project?
3: So I've been involved um, with, with Unite We Curl. So the BlackRock Initiative is a partner with Unite We Curl. So we've been involved with them since, I guess it would have been the summer of 2020. Things are progressing along. This seed curling season was really about getting the word out there about our existence. So we had some great conversations with a number of fans, and number of curlers at the slam in Oakville last fall, so that would have been the fall of 2021, um, things have been a bit slow because of the pandemic and the lack of curling happening across the country. But as things are picking back up again and the curling season's wrapping up, we have a lot of people reaching out and asking how they can be involved and what they can do to make their curling clubs more diverse.
2: So you think it's moving along as you would expect it? What do you think can be further done to help this whole issue out in your opinion?
3: I think really as um, curlers and as the curling community in general, we need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable. So really recognizing that what we're doing and what the things that I personally talk about, it's not about that I think curlers are bad people or that they're racist. It's that we really need to reach out so that everybody, regardless of their background or their culture, recognizes that curling is a sport that they can try.
1: Well, yeah, uh, Andrew, thank you very much for, for coming on, obviously, today. Um, from a, right at the club level. Um, so I'm from a small town in Alberta. I now live in Edmonton, but where I'm from was a very big curling community. Lots of two sheet clubs, three sheet clubs, four sheet clubs. Every town's got a building. Uh, you know, Warren's out in Vancouver. You know, we've got clubs all across Canada. I guess from a club point of view, like, I think, I don't think anybody disagrees. With you, like this is a very important uh, initiative you've got going. I guess my question for you is: at a club level, at a little two sheeter in the middle of of Alberta or Saskatchewan or Ontario, how do we approach this situation to get more people involved in the club? Like, I guess from a on the ground
3: movement, how do we do it? So that's a great question. So it's twofold. I think first off, I'm um, reaching out to different communities and asking them, what does curling look like to them? So one of the things that we did with the Black Rock Initiative, which is another not-for-profit that I'm involved with, is we reached out to um, three different communities. And one of the communities that we reached out to um, the Black Nova Scotian community, one of the things that they told us was that in, within their community, they perceive curling as a sport for rich old white people. Now, we know as the curling community that that's not necessarily the case, but it's working with the perception rather than arguing the reality. So from there, we had discussions around eliminating the barriers and what would make, the, what would make that community feel comfortable in coming out and trying curling. So through a number of different conversations that we were able to start a pilot for Black youth um, within Halifax, and we ran that. That was one of the three pilots that we ran back in the fall. But to that point, it's really having conversations with communities and really identifying the barriers that they see within the sport and creating an environment that's welcoming and safe for them. And then the second part of that is when somebody of color walks into your curling club versus looking at them like, what the heck are you doing here? Because that's something that I've seen a number of different times. Welcome them like you would anybody else right? Because you have to remember these people are walking into a facility where nobody in there looks like them. So there's a bit of, um, nervousness, a bit of intimidation on their end. So it's really just going anywhere to make sure that everybody feels welcome when they walk into the curling club.
1: But it comes to, um, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. I think there's maybe a, um, a situation because we all talk about curling clubs being, and I just said it, a curling club. Um, but they're not really a club. They should be an athletic facility that can be used by anybody. But but it's not viewed that way. It's not viewed that way uh, from a taxation and um, situation. Most cities tax curling as a private entity, a private club where you are a member and nobody else is allowed in, at least that's a perception. So that's gotta be something that needs to be looked at is getting rid of this curling club name and become more of a open, community curling facility i don't know exactly how we do that do you think that would help andrew because to me i'm always nervous at walking and i'm nervous too about walking into a, a private golf club because it's private I, i'm not invited and so you walk in and you kind of look around like you know oh boy uh do i fit in here but if it was a golf facility like a public golf course and you just walk in you stumble in and and it just feels more welcoming, and and that's to me. So do you think that would help by changing the perception of our curling facilities, like not the private ones that there are private, fine, be private, but the ones where they're public entities and you can rent the ice on an hourly basis, you can be a Monday night member, you can be a social member, you don't even got to curl. You just want to have a, gla- a glass of wine or have something to eat there. Uh, thoughts on that, Andrew, because that might really be able to help.
3: No, 100%. and. It's really interesting because with the initiatives that we do, we're asking curling clubs to market towards BIPOC individuals. But the reality is, is a number of curling clubs across the country struggle to market altogether, regardless of what cultural background that they're marketing to. But this is a conversation that I first had with um Rob Swan in New Brunswick, oh my goodness, forever ago now. <laughs> but um, yes, a hundred percent. Like we need to do more to um, make sure that curling clubs are opening to everyone. Because at the end of the day, like the reality is, is that anybody should be able to walk into a curling club and be able to try the sport. Now, whether they join leagues and all the work around that, that's a bit different and slightly more complicated. But if you want to try curling, so if you've just seen it in the Olympics and you've fallen in love with the sport, we see this in the States all the time. There's a number of different initiatives that are happening. There's just a number of open houses that are happening but around here especially um in atlantic Canada, we really don't see much of that we see the bump the bump in, in the interest but no one's really to drive that interest and i think changing the name to curling centers or curling facilities and making that more open and more welcome would definitely help it'd be a step in the right direction
1: like name it a public curling facility and i, I don't understand i put it out on uh i was, I was doing uh well i was just down in the states for the last month with uh, doing the nbc coverage and during one of the games i forget which one one of the finals uh, it was on um it was a live show and uh, i just said you know anybody who who wants to try curling the curling clubs in, in the us there's 212 of them they all have learned to curls so you just phone the club you show up and just you're welcome in and you can throw a few rocks and all that and actually i got two messages back within a few minutes while we were on the air saying kevin our phone lines are off the hook right now. Like they just crazy amount of people. They're all booked up They're like we're already booked solid for the next two weeks, solid. The club is full of, of people going to come and try it. You're right, Andrew, but we don't do that much here. I'd love to have time to just phone around to local curling clubs and pretend I'm just somebody that oh, I just watched the curling at the Olympics. Um, when did you learn to curl? And I'll, I wonder how many clubs would go. Well, it's on Tuesday from uh, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's all free. Just come in and try. I wonder how many clubs are doing that in Canada. And you may maybe, you know,
3: it's very few. And that's not to say that every curling club does a bad job, but there's a number that you couldn't join to learn to curl right now, even if you wanted to. I think a big part of the way that curl clubs market themselves is we focus a lot on the members that are currently within the club. And you need to be able to service those members that you currently have, but we really need to step out of that comfort zone that I talked about earlier and market to those who aren't in the club, regardless of the background that they have, right? Because the reality is out in the general population, I'm sure you guys have talked about this a number of times. Like, curling is seen as a sport for old people that old people do. And, you know, there's images that go back to like the smoking that used to happen back <laughs> in, in the curling club and just the, the, the drinking out on ice and that image. That image, even though curling's been in the Olympics for come, 20 years or so, that image still exists. And we need to do a better job as curling clubs from coast to coast to coast in eliminating that image.
2: Let's uh, shift gears a bit. You started an initiative with Sportsnet that's called Black Rock Initiative. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? How did it start? And what are some of your goals with Black Rock Initiatives?
3: Sure. So um, this initially started after the broom design that we spoke about earlier. We were trying to figure out a spot of where we could have those funds go because part of the proceeds go back to something. And at the time, there was no real organization that existed where BIPOC people could be brightened and try to support a curling. So after some long deliberations and stepping out of my own personal comfort zone, I decided to start the not-for-profit called the Black Rock Initiative. And our mission is twofold. It's to bring more BIPOC youth into the sport of that give them an opportunity to try the sport, but also, and some would argue more importantly, is providing curling clubs with the tools and education necessary to be a more welcoming facility to their entire community. Because it's one thing to bring in whether it's Indigenous youth, um, people of color, or, or Black youth. It's one thing to bring them into the curling club. But if they have that unwelcoming experience when they walk in, then they're not going to want to play, right? regardless of how fun the sport is on, on the ice and whatnot.
2: Let me ask you a question regarding regard to that in this whole project. What's your current relationship with the governing bodies, provincially and nationally? Are, are you working with them? Are you part of what they're doing? How is that all falling into place?
3: So... Provincially, at the moment, we're not working with the governing body here in Nova Scotia. Um, we've had a couple of conversations with them, but the um, capacity is not there to really help us in a substantial way. Curling Canada has provided us with funding, and we've had a number of different conversations, um, in particular with Helen Radford with in Canada. So they've helped fund some of the work that we do, but I think we recognize across the board, whether it's not for profit or with our governing bodies that more needs to be done. One of the things that I said in the Sportsnet video, and it's as true today as it was when when the video was filmed, is that this really isn't a problem for a single black person or a not-for-profit to solve. This is a, a problem for our governing bodies to solve. And I think while we're starting to move in the right direction, progress isn't necessarily happening as quick as it should. And I think the BlackRock Initiative can play a role in expediting that process, for lack of a better term.
0: Uh, Andrew Paris, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm, I'm really impressed uh, when, when I hear what you're doing. You know, a lot of these programs, you, you're, you're currently are doing so many things, uh, Black Curl Magic, uh, BlackRock Initiative, uh, United We Curl. You're working with uh, Goldline on a bunch of the stuff. You've connected with Sportsnet. You know, whenever you hear these uh, things, uh, you know, people always have great ideas of what we should do, what we should do, and and not everyone's prepared to step up, you know, when it's a call for action like this. Uh, Way to go, Andrew. Congratulations on what you're doing. Uh, I I bet they couldn't have a better person involved in this thing, and uh, you're really so good. Also, the Canadian Sports Centre Atlantic, you are the coaching lead for equity, diversity, inclusion, and mentorship. Uh, way to go Andrew it's just an absolute treat to have you on and congratulations on everything you're doing for curling now how's your game by the way do you ever have time to curl you're doing so much here I said this guy can never curl anymore you're doing so much
3: I'll sometimes come out and throw rocks um, with my son or the mixed doubles team that I'm coaching but I don't get to curl as, as much as I would like let's just put it that way way
0: to go Andrew uh, thanks a million man for taking the time uh, we, we really appreciate it. all the best and, and, and best of luck to you with all this stuff Andrew
2: Thanks, Andrew. Good luck to you, everything you're doing.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, wasn't that great? Great interview uh, with Andrew, and um, thanks a lot, Goldline for bringing us our guest each and every week. Let's move along to our next segment. We want to thank uh, Meridian for sponsoring Storytime. Thank you very much to Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Uh, Warren, Storytime. Uh, we had mentioned about the great, anyone who's been around curling for any length of time would know or at least heard of Larry Wood, uh, and he passed away recently. Warren, uh, tell us all about that.
2: Yeah, a pretty sad day last Tuesday, Jim, to find out that Larry had passed. Uh, he got COVID and, and as a result got pneumonia and unfortunately slipped away. Uh, Larry and I went back a long ways. Um, I'll maybe give a little funny story to start here of. Larry Wood and Ray Kingsmith were from Calgary. Of course, I was in Edmonton. So in those days, you know, you knew who each other were, but you didn't say much more than hi. And uh, I was attending a World Men's Championship in Garmin's Park Incursion as a guest of Air Canada. And... Larry Wood and Ray Kingsmith were there uh, from Calgary, Larry writing for the Herald, but both of them doing radio reports back to Calgary as well about the world championship. So we kind of start to hang out together. And as a result, there was a a Bavarian bond spiel played on the world ice immediately following the world championship. And we ended up playing in that together, along with another guy from Calgary, from Air Canada. And interesting enough, I was traveling back to Copenhagen from uh, the event in Garmisch to visit my cousin. And these two guys decided that we were going to take a train from Munich, the night train from Munich to Copenhagen. And uh, so we ended up riding together uh, in a story that could take two days to tell it all. But as a result, we became friends. And uh, Ray and I went on to work hard to get curling into 1988 as a demonstration sport in Calgary. But Larry kind of became our... Maybe our PR agent, our writer, and uh, he was very involved with curling. He got more involved, but as I said in the little uh, brief I wrote, that he was my friend. He was my writing mentor, and one of the best curling writers and supporters the sport has ever been blessed with. And he was, and it, in, in, in extent beyond working for the Calgary Herald, which he did for forty-two years, he was very involved in curling writing. He was the originator. He was with the originator of the Curling News in Calgary, Ted Thonger, and Larry was the. Writer and publish uh, writer and editor of that magazine or paper from 1965 till 1980. He worked with me in the early 80s first on an, a paper called the Curl Canada Courier, and then we morphed that into what became uh, Curling Canada Magazine that was started in 1982. We also started the Media Fact Book at that time, and he worked hand in hand with me. He was doing most of the editing. He was teaching me along the way. I was a technical writer, and he taught me to be more of a creative writer. And he was also the keeper of many, many records. Larry had records on everything that ever happened in curling. He became the editor of the Tanker Times at the Briar in 1990. And he did that until 2014. And with the extended coverage of the Season of Champions, a paper started to be done from all the Season of Champions events. And Larry El- also was the editor of that as well up until 2014. There was a time when the Canadian Curling Association had a historian, and he filled that role for six years back in the 80s. Had a unique style. He said things the way it was. Uh, he knew people in the curling world everywhere. He covered his first briar in 1960. And in, ni- in 2011, he did his 50th briar. He did two more after that. So I know no other person that ever lived that did 52 briars, which he did. He was a member of the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame, member of the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, and the Governor General's Curling Club. I'll miss his chats, talking about curling and everything else under the sun. Uh, I bet you will, Warren. And anyone
0: who met him, uh, he was a riot. I used to. He, he wasn't afraid of the Briar Patch coming in. Uh, <laughs> um, he, he was great. He he was always around. Uh, and so I appreciate him, Warren. And uh, condolences uh, to his family uh, on our behalf, and certainly to you, Warren. I know uh, I know you had a great relationship with Larry, um, and I believe you when you say he'll be dearly missed. Uh, thanks a lot uh, to Meridian for bringing us Story Time. Great comments, uh, Warren, that you. Uh, made about larry uh, so that's a wrap uh on the show inside curling we're reaching out to curling clubs all around uh, the world if you want us to do a zoom meeting with you uh, drop us an email uh, also we want to thank Rod paulson who handles our facebook group and our facebook page his media company is called in-house strategies thanks a lot to him if you haven't joined check it out there's a lot of action uh on that stuff again inside at gmail.com warren your new book is out as we said sticks and stones now on the market uh, and we give away copies of it each and every week. If we read your emails, uh, you, will, you will get an electronic copy of that. Thank you very much for tuning in to Inside Curling. We are back each and every week. Take it easy, boys. See you, Kevin. See you, Warren. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.